We, of course, continue this study. I, I pray it's been a blessing to you as it's been to me. The book of Galatians, when you're there, open up to chapter 4. And as we did last week and we'll do this week, we're just going to start by reading the passage that we're going to explore today. Galatians 4, we're going to read verses 12 to 20. Galatians 4, 12 to 20. The Word of God says this, Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose and not only when I'm present with you. My little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. This is the word of the Lord. Churches, churches exist to glorify God. That's why they exist. That is, all churches, and as Jim reminded us this morning, we're not talking about bricks and mortar. We're talking about the local collection of the saints. They exist, they are there, put together for the glory of God. And that's for all time, as Ephesians 3.21 says. Listen to this. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. That is crystal clear. The purpose of the local collection of the saints, the church, is to glorify God. And beloved, the glory of God in the church only happens, mark this, when God's people glorify him. It just stands to reason. It can only happen that way. And how, you might ask, is God glorified in God's people? One word, one word, Christ-likeness. Christ-likeness. That is the way God is glorified through his people. That is, as God's people, the church, the Christian, become like Christ. That is Christ-likeness. And it is... What happens throughout the Christian life through the daily gospel transformation of renewing your mind? Romans 12, 2. It happens with thinking with the mind of Christ. 1 Corinthians 2, 16. It is being transformed into Christ's image from one degree of glory to another. 2 Corinthians 3, 18. That is, putting on the new self, the likeness of Christ. Ephesians 4, Colossians 3. That is, laying aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, that is, running with endurance the race that is set before us. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Yes, Christ's likeness is looking to Jesus, the founder and market perfecter of our faith. Now that is not only the command in scripture to follow the head of the church, but it is the cry of the under-shepherd, the church leader, the elder, the pastor, for their people, for God's people to grow in Christ-likeness. Yes, the church that is truly pursuing Christ is led by men that truly desire their people to pursue Christ and to be conformed to the image of their Savior. Just like the Apostle Paul did for the churches of Galatia. God used Paul to bring the gospel to Galatia for pagans to turn to Christ. And those new Christians were strengthened and commended. Remember Acts 14, 
23. Paul loved them. Paul spiritually nurtured them. Paul, in fact, anguished for them. His pastor's heart for his children, it just comes out at verse 19. I don't know if you caught that when we read it. It's on full display in this passage. The emotion that's ringing out of these verses that we will look at today. Because those same Galatians that Paul loved like children were no longer gaining strength or earning commendation. No, they were relapsing. We saw this last week. That's where we were in verses 8 through 11. They were relapsing. But really, we've seen this through the whole letter. This is why Paul picked up the pen to write the letter because he heard of their relapse. It's all about that. Paul's appeal, as we saw last week in verses 8 through 11, was more theological. It was more rhetorical, if you will. He was asking provoking questions, saying things like, how can you turn back? How can you embrace elementary things? And that makes sense for us, right? Why would you want to regress? Why would you want to go back to elementary school? Why would you want to do that? Here now, as we turn to verse 12, Paul lays his heart out in these verses. I mean, friends, it's laid bare. This is base Paul that you're going to see in these verses. You're going to see the pastor's heart, the shepherd beating for these Galatians. A heart, here it is, that cares more about the depth of a person than the breadth of people. He cares little about how many Galatians, but he cares a lot about how deep Galatian. How deep. A heart that cares more about spiritual growth than material prosperity. Paul cares nothing of the things of the world. Look, there are needs to be met, but he cares about how one is growing in Christ. And we'll see that today. A heart that cares like the chief shepherd that Christ would be formed in his sheep. That's his concern. Christ-likeness. The plan of God for God's people from the very beginning. Listen to this in Romans 8.29, if there was ever a doubt. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined for what? To be conformed to the image of his son. That truth inescapable in God's word. Beloved, if you are a Christian here this morning, listen to me. If you are a Christian here today, Christ's likeness is the will of God for you. Look, I'm not here to talk down vocations and marriage partners and all that lovely stuff. But the will of God for your life, the transcendent, meta, overarching truth for everything you do is this, that you would be conformed to the image of Christ. You do that, I tell my boys this all the time, you do that, you pursue Christ first and foremost, everything else falls into place. Make him Lord of your life. Pursue him in every domain and everything else will be just fine. Pursue Christ. That Christ would be formed in you. That's the goal. That is God's will for you. And here in these verses, let's look at them. You will see four ways in which this happens in your life. Four ways in which Christ is formed in you. Let's turn our attention to them. It's a rich Rich passage. First, formation starts with surrender. Formation starts with surrender. Look at verse 12 again with me. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. It's a kind of verse where you initially might say, what does that mean? Are you talking about Paul? Let's look at that. Let's unpack it. Three things that we need to highlight just right off the bat that are just so helpful as we chart the course for what this means. Three things. One, note the term of address. Brothers. When you see that in the New Testament, you know every time he's addressing, right, his fellow Christian. So his fellow Christians here. This is not where, you know, Galatians, you've relapsed so much and I'm treating you as outsiders. No. You're beloved. You're brethren. Bold letter, but no love lost here. This is a loving admonition. This is tender. Two, look at the appeal. I entreat you. He doesn't just say, I ask you. I entreat you. That is always heartfelt. I love this. This is pleading in love. Entreating is always has that. It's not necessarily this. It's coming alongside with open arms. Say, I, I am entreating you, please. 
pleading for the Galatians. This is heart-to-heart reaching out. And three, note the command, become as I am. Now, we need to know, we need to park for a moment. This is the first command to action you're going to see in Galatians. And this is your grammatical cue that we're about to turn the corner. Every letter by Paul, almost everyone, has this. The first half of the letter, you get your indicative Right? These are the things that are true, just the facts, that's all that means. Here are the facts of the gospel. And then on the other half of his letters, you have, if this is true, then go and do this. You think of your hinge verses, right? Ephesians 4, Romans 12. This is the the method that Paul uses all the time. Well, here you have your first command in the book of Galatians. Now, he still has some housekeeping to do with the law, which we'll get to next week. But... Really, this now charts the course for where Paul is going to end this letter. And it's the first command, and it's an interesting one. Become as I am. This is love that calls for a response. This says you have heard, you know Galatia, now what will you do? Paul calls the Galatians here to respond, to respond by becoming as I am. And what does that mean? Well, simply, it's all that Paul has said about himself so far. We don't want to overthink this. This is all he said about himself so far, and particularly his relationship to the law. To the law. Paul says, in that relationship, become like me. And let's remind ourselves of what Paul has said. Again, we're just going to look back at a couple things for a refresher. Look at chapter 1. Chapter 1, verse 14, remember everything Paul has been saying. Now, what has he said about himself? Remember when he set the table? In verse 14, testifying, he said this, And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. I mean, Paul was it. He was an ethnic Jew and he was a super Jew. I mean, there was no one excelling beyond Paul in his Judaism. That's his point. He was it. He was it. Paul was, again, the ultimate in terms of following Judaism. Formally, he followed. So he, didn't ju- he wasn't just an ethnic Jew or following. He did it, here it is, to be made right with God. That's the key. He wanted to be right with God, so that's what you do. As a good Jew. And I mean, if anyone would come under the law, here it is. If anyone was going to subject themselves to law living in order to earn God's favor, it would be Paul. It would be Paul. By DNA alone. However, here it is. Paul was, although that was true of him by nature in a sense, he had come out from under that. He was no longer under the law, and he testified. That's what we looked at in chapter 1. And in fact, this truth was true in spite of his Jewish heritage. Look at chapter 2 now. Again, we're refreshing on Paul. What does he say in verse 15? Isn't this interesting? Chapter 2, verse 15. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. And then this chapter three times on how one is right with God. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we have also believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. We've looked at that verse so much because it's so crystal clear. By works of the law, no man will be justified. Paul in one sense says, that's who I was. Law works which were futile, but I came out from under that. So Paul, a Jew by birth, yet not seeking justification, which is really to be made right with God, he's not seeking that through the law. No, this Jew of Jews, justified by Christ, we just read in verse 16, dead to the law, look at that in verse 19 of chapter 2, living by faith in verse 20 of chapter 2, incredible. All this law work to justify that is abandoned from the very one you'd expect to submit his life to the law. And that therein, friends, is the point. Paul says, if it's true of me, who has every vestige to follow law, yet I've abandoned it, become as I am and abandon the law. Do you see that? He says, become as I am. I've abandoned the law. And I mean, if I have abandoned the law, if I, the Jew of Jews, have abandoned it, then certainly, Galatia, you should be too. Become as I am. Become as I am. That's his point. In other words, abandon your desire for the law. 
You're seeking the law to justify yourself. It's like Paul is saying, look at me, look at me and become like me. If it's true of me, then it must be true of you. Galatians, Paul says, become as I am. Turn from the law and turn back to Christ. Become as I am, but that's not all. Look at what else he says. He goes on to say, for I also have become as you are. You say, okay, well, I get the first part. What does that mean? The Galatians becoming like Paul is one thing. The children like the father, if you will, to give you a picture. But what does Paul mean when he says, look at it, Galatians, I have become as you are. Well, similar to the Jew by nature, the Jew by nature, right, law keeper, that's what they're born into. Paul's point here is this. I have become like you Gentiles who by nature are what? not under the Mosaic law. I have become like you. And this was a point Paul made to Peter in his rebuke. You can look at there if you want, chapter 2. Remember his question to Peter in uh, chapter 2, verse 14? He said, Peter, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? That's not who the Gentile is. The Gentile's not under the Mosaic law by nature. How can you impose that on them? This is the point. In other words, Peter, Gentiles are not under the law like you and me. They are Gentiles. They're not born under, or here it is, have any relationship to the Mosaic law at all. And that is, friends, precisely the point Paul is making here. In that way, like the Gentiles with no law relationship, he says to the Galatians, that is how I have become as you are. Do you see that? You were not under the law, and I've become like you, not under the law. Now, that, of course, would be the logical pieces, the logical mechanics of it. Yet the key piece is implied here. We're missing. If we left it there, we'd be missing the heart of what Paul is saying here. There's something very important that goes both ways. It's missing here. The point is not only what has been abandoned, but here it is. The point is what each one has surrendered to. Let's look at that. Yes, Galatians become like Paul, turning from the law, but is that it? Just drop the law, turn from it. No, turn to Christ. Turn to Christ. Yes, Paul has become like the Galatians, dead to the law, but that's not it. Then he's now an antinomian just running around. No, no, he is alive to Christ. That's who he follows now, remember? Christ. In both transformations, going both ways, there is a turn, and we would say it this way, there is a surrender. There is a surrender from what binds or is dead by nature to the one who justifies and gives life, Christ Jesus. And Mark at Westmount, that is always how conforming to Christ begins, always. Formation starts with surrender every time. It's the only way. In fact, I'd submit to you, beloved, there can be no formation without surrender. It just doesn't happen. It doesn't happen at all. You must let go, whether it is law works to be made right with God, or this morning, maybe whatever you have, whatever you brought here this morning, maybe even your attendance, whatever it is that you feel is going to make you right with God, that's going to earn you favor with God, abandon it. Raise that white flag and surrender and say, no, I recognize them now for what they are, empty deeds, because I cannot be made right with you by my own hands. And that's the gospel. You can't. There's nothing you can do to be made right with God. You must wave the white flag. You must surrender. Christ-likeness cannot, cannot happen without it. That's again how it begins. Only Christ surrendering to him. Christ formed in you. Starts with surrender to him. Next, formation progresses with suffering. Said formation starts with surrender. Formation progresses with suffering. Look at the end of verse 12 with me. Paul says this, you did me no wrong. Do you love that saying? We still say that today. You did me no wrong. I mean, we're good. Galatians, we're good. You did me no wrong. This sets up. This pithy little statement here sets up the next section for what Paul's going to say, because he's going to take them back to how they did him no wrong. He's going to show them the great relationship they started with. You did me no wrong. So this sets it up where Paul reminds these Galatians of the Galatian reception that they gave him. 
First, he reminds them of his providential arrival. How is it providential? How did the gospel come? Let's look at verse 13. Again, we're in chapter 4. Let's look at verse 13. You know, Galatians, you know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. Now, that's really interesting what he says there. Paul says, look at the word. The reason I originally preached the gospel to you, you get that because there, was because of a bodily ailment. Do you see that? That tells us the reason why he was in Galatia was because of something going on in his body. In other words, Paul went to the Galatian region because of an ailment. That was the cause for him being there. Amazing. Now, I want to be clear before we say anything else. This is all that the Bible says directly on why Paul ended up in Galatia. Right? That's your direct statement. However, by implication, we can put a few pieces together, and we do this this morning to see the amazing providence of God. This is why we do it. It's just so amazing. By implication, then, Paul was not... Mark this, friends. We haven't mentioned this to this point. Paul was not originally intending by this statement to go to Galatia, that region. He wasn't. By implication, he wasn't going inland to Galatia. Let's briefly reacquaint ourselves with those early days of the first missionary journey. And again, we need this reminder on the providence of God. Do two things. Turn to Acts 13. Put your bulletin in there. And let's reacquaint with the map that we have of our region. Let's take a look. Just a quick recap. This is Paul's missionary journey, and forgive me for the the smallness of the area that we're looking at, but you see those arrows, and all you really need to concern yourself with, remember on his first missionary journey, you see Antioch on the far right in Syria. He leaves and goes to Cyprus, right? Remember, he goes to Cyprus. Salamis is where they enter in Acts 13. Remember, you see that in Acts 13. And Paphos is where they set sail from to go to Perga. Do you see Cyprus there, kind of middle Uh, right of middle there, Cyprus, and then you see the arrows all over the place. But the key is, he goes there first, that's on his first missionary journey. Remember what happens on Cyprus, we won't go through it in Acts 13. A little bit of opposition, there's a magician there, there's Bar-Jesus, there's all these things where it's just getting a little difficult there. Paul is firm, Paul is firm. But from there, so they're done in Cyprus, and you see Paphos, South Cyprus, They set sail, and they're going to Perga. Just follow those arrows. They're all going up to Lycia there, and that's interesting, right? That's not yet Galatia. That's Lycia. Well, let's pick up the account in verse 13. Read Acts 13, 13 with me. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. Pamphylia would be that region there in Lycia, right on the coast where Perga is. That's where they arrive. Fair enough, we're tracking together. But then listen to this. And John, that of course is John Mark, the author of the Gospel of Mark. He's with them early on. John Mark left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. What's interesting, if, again, if you can see it in the middle of the map... Antioch and Pisidia is just straight north of Perga. And you say, well, why is that something to note? Well, listen, something happens here in Acts 13, 13 that makes John Mark abandon them. And then all of a sudden, you may think, well, they just went north. Well, that is 3,600 feet above sea level. You don't just all of a sudden say, well, you know what? Let's go up into the mountains, you know, unless you know. You would have hugged the coast and kept going. Very likely, commentators feel he was on his way to Ephesus. So the question then is, why in the world? Why in the world would Paul go inward and upward to Galatia? Why all of a sudden? Why that route? And even more, we can turn back in Acts 13 now to Galatians 4. Why, when you read that comment from Paul in the book of Galatians, when he says it was because, verse 13, because of a bodily ailment that I preached to you at first. You can start to put pieces together. What happened in those lowlands around Perga that made them change course? Well, some have speculated, as you take a final look at this map, if you look at Perga in those lowlands, it was very swampy. Pamphylia was very swampy. And those of you know... Uh, Who loves to hide in swamps would be mosquitoes. And some of you know that mosquitoes like to share things with us, and one of those things is malaria. 
So commentators suspect that one of the things that maybe the Apostle Paul contracted in the swamplands of Pamphylia was malaria. Maybe, maybe, we don't know, John Mark, coming off of the oppression in Cyprus, seeing Paul contract malaria, says, you know what, I didn't ask for this. I'm out of here. I'm going back. Maybe. That's one conjecture about what the bodily ailment was with the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul then, as the story would go, sought refuge in the highlands. I'm getting away from the swamp and I'm going up into the mountains to get away from this, seeking crisp air up there. It's possible, but consider what Paul says next. Look at verse 14. Think about what is said next, though. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus Now, here's where we keep tracking. Paul says, though my condition, whatever it was, was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me. We're going to come back to those words in a second. Now, listen, malaria is horrible, but it wouldn't necessarily be a trial. I mean, the person that has malaria is suffering. It's like a hot javelin through the head with those headaches and fever all the time. But it would, it's not the kind of ailment that's a trial to someone else, not necessarily anyway, But again, we don't know. But here's where now we start to go further. Look at those words, scorn and despise. Those two words tell us the Galatians received Paul. And whatever his condition was, you would think, by implication, Paul says, you would have scorned me. You would have despised me. Well, isn't that interesting? Well, zone in on that second word, despise. At the root of that word is to spit out. If you despise someone, there's a spitting out going on. You say, well, what does that have to do with it? Well, in the ancient Near East, if someone came up on someone else and they felt that something was going on, especially spiritual, particularly a demonic possession, there would be a spitting out. I despise you. And that would be an act of forsaking to say, I want nothing to do with it. This is really at the heart of this word. Because of this word choice, again, I'm just laying out uh, the options to you, people conjecture that Paul had something like that. That something that would have, of course, Paul was not possessed by a demon, but some ailment that presents like a possession. And many commentators always allude to one condition we know of well, known as epilepsy. And they conjecture that Paul maybe had epilepsy, and he had a seizure when he arrives in Galatia, but they didn't scorn him, and they didn't despise him. But think about the reception, though. They might have spit on him if they felt he was demon-possessed, but no, look at verse 14. They did receive him, and not only did they receive him, what does it say? As an angel of God is Christ Jesus. That is actually the opposite reception of one perceived to be possessed. So church, although it seems like there's not much to go on, and you say, how can we know, which is true, We do have, and this is where I love studying God's word because it gives you sometimes what we miss. Look at the very next verse. What does it say in verse 15? What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. First, Paul asks, what then has become of your blessedness? In other words, whatever the condition was, you blessed me. You received me, even though my condition was a trial to you. And then it appears he references what exactly was going on with him. He says in the middle of verse 15, For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. That points, of course, to some ailment with his eyes. And it seems to be confirmed by another, not superstition, not geography, by another verse in God's word. Look at chapter 6, verse 11. Look at how he closes his letter. See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. You start to put the puzzle pieces together and you start to realize maybe Paul had an eye condition. His sign off in the final chapter, maybe with his signature because of his condition, large writing. Now again, I want to be crystal clear, Westmount. We can't be sure, sure. We don't know and One of the reasons why this is so fascinating for commentators is they love to just keep following those trails, and we can't know. And in one sense, the specific suffering is not the point, and I take you through that this morning for a number of reasons, but one of them is that the specific ailment, whatever it is, as fascinating as it may be to the historian and you, that's not the point. What is the point of this text this morning? 
Instead, it's the reality that Paul did suffer. It's not what he suffered with, it's that he did suffer. And that it was a trial to the Galatians. So mark that. Paul suffered and the Galatians suffered. And that's the point. And here it is, that the suffering by all of them was used by God in his providence. Don't miss this, church. Whatever the suffering was, that's the reason why you have the church of Galatia. Isn't that incredible? Because of the suffering in the providence of God. And that tells us, Christian, God does something. A sovereign God does something in suffering. Amazing. God used that suffering to progress the gospel and to form Christ in these Galatians. And that, Westmount, is the point this morning we turn our attention to. How is Christ formed in you? Christian, how is Christ formed in you? Through suffering. It was true of Paul who was told directly upon his conversion. We've reminded ourselves of this charge that Paul got, remember, on the road to Damascus. Acts 9.16, note it. Paul is told, I, Christ, will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. It was true of the Galatians who, upon their conversion, endured a trial. And whatever that was with Paul, we don't know, but Paul makes clear it was a trial. In fact, he says it was a trial for them. Look at that word to also mean a temptation for them as well. And listen, when you think about the Galatian suffering, the caregivers among us know what I'm talking about. You may not be suffering, but it is a trial for you when you're going through this ordeal and trying to help someone with their suffering. In both cases, it's a trial. They may not have the ailment, the caregivers like the Galatians, but they do endure the trial and the suffering just as much. And beloved, whether you are here and you're suffering this morning or you're helping someone who is suffering this morning, be encouraged, please. Yes, it is hard. Yes, the suffering continues. Yes, the trial endures. And unending, it seems. Have you been there? Unending suffering. It seems like it'll never end. When will the suffering go? But there is also something that is enduring that is continuing through that for both of you. And that is Christ forming in you. Christ forming in you. Yes, your transformation, your identity in Christ is taking fuller shape. Is John Piper that famously said this, do not waste your suffering. Don't waste your suffering. It's the refiner's fire in which you're shaped and it's how Christ is formed in you. Now, I know what you're asking. If you're suffering this morning, and in one sense, we all will suffer at some point. If you're not suffering yet, you will be. You ask yourself this morning, how? How in the world can suffering progress my formation like Christ? Good question. And you may say, Jason, suffering is hard. You don't understand. Every day I feel weaker and weaker and weaker. Beloved, I do understand in one sense, and I know it's hard. But that is exactly the point. And that is how you know you are ready to be shaped, right? You think about the parent giving the child medicine. You can't with that rigid body. You can't when everything's just all on their own. When they go limp, you can do something, right? In the same way, when we are in our weakened sense, when we are like clay, just ready to fall off the table, then and only then can Christ be formed in you. In Paul's second letter to the Corinthian church, many commentators believe that Paul references the same bodily ailment in the 12th chapter. You know it famously as the thorn in the flesh, right? Many feel like this is the same thing going on here. In fact, in that chapter, Paul begs three times for it to be removed. I know some of you relate to that. I do. When you're begging God to take it away. Take this away from me. Three times Paul pleads, take this suffering away. And the Lord says this, 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9, so helpful this morning in our suffering. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. My power is made perfect in your weakness. Beloved, that is how Christ is formed in you. Let me put it to you simply this morning. Less of you, more of him. 
Suffering does that. And can I submit to you this morning, very personal for me over the past year, that's the only way it happens. We in our self-righteousness and our pride and our own stuff, sometimes God's megaphone is to say, I will take your health. That's what I'm going to do because you're not listening to me any other way. And I can't do anything until you suffer. Now we can begin to form Christ in you. My power, God says, is perfect in your weakness. Doesn't that confound us? It should confound the Westerner, right? The self-made, the proud. It should confound them. It should confound them to say, my power. And that's the way God works. When you are at your lowest and at your weakest, now we can begin. But that's not all. That's the testing of your faith that leads to steadfastness. Maybe you're thinking of James 1 steadfastness that chapter 1, 4 says, when we let that steadfastness have its full effect, we become, listen, perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That's in a state of suffering. Wow. When you let it have its full effect, when we are patient in that and we turn to the Lord, we become perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. Church, again, that's in suffering. And then what about this? Romans 5, 3. Listen to this. We rejoice in our sufferings. Why? Why do we rejoice? Because sufferings produce what? Endurance. And here it is, beloved. Endurance produce what? Character. Character. What this world needs for Christ-likeness is men and women of godly character. And isn't it amazing that the Word of God tells you that one of the mechanisms, and I would submit to you the mechanism that God does that in you, is through suffering. That's the way he does it. Suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. Amen and praise God. Because we know, we know God loves us and is doing a work. And we don't have to have all the answers. But all we need is God's word that says, trust me, I am doing something in you. In fact, the very prayer you've been praying to me, to grow, to draw close to me, I'm answering that prayer in your suffering. Yes, Not the way you would have authored it, and it never is. And how many of us would look back and say, praise God, he didn't take up my script? How many? Praise God, he's sovereign and perfect. It's godly character that he's forming in us, and godly character through Christ's likeness. And mark it as we come back to Galatia. All because of a bodily ailment in Paul. Very likely headed west for Ephesus, the big booming city of Ephesus. Because of suffering, they headed inward and upward, and the rest is history. That is Christ forming through suffering. So Christ-like formation starts with surrender, progresses with suffering. Next, formation relapses with flattery. Formation relapses with flattery. You look at that, those of you that were here last week, and you say, wow, here we go again. Relapse. But of course, this is the undercurrent of this, and it doesn't go away for these Galatians. Right? In the verses prior, in verses 8 to 11, we looked at this much last week. And here we're presented with one additional cause for relapse that also, not surprisingly, derails Christ being formed in us. Look at verse 16. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? Hmm. How tragic it has become here. Look at that beginning. And now he says, have I become your enemy? I mean, is this even possible? You received me like an angel, like Christ himself, and now I'm your enemy. How does that happen? That same Paul considered an enemy. Now, why? And, and here it is. Here, because, look at it, he's telling the truth. That's why he's an enemy to the Galatians. Isn't that astounding? Because he's a truth teller. He's now an enemy. It's tragic, Westmount, but not just here in Galatia, but really everywhere since that first century. In all places where the truth is proclaimed, right? Acts 20 tells us what? He warned those Ephesian elders, fierce wolves will what? Come up from out there? Among you. The men know I could do a mini-sermon on this alone. This is the truth. When you preach God's word, when you give truth, when you pour into those things, listen, I even thought of an illustration from out there here. This week, Westmont, I lost track of how many times I've heard this happen to beloved brothers in other churches. 
Men who went to churches and they were lauded. I mean, the confetti was coming down and the gifts was aplenty. Loved. They were loved. And within months, the phone call, or you get the item, the email, they've got a spear in the back. Have they changed what they're doing? No. In fact, they've dug in and continue to preach truth and now they're hated. Now they're hated because they're sharing truth with a congregation they love. So sadly common that it's cliché. And in all the cases that I know, not just this text, what's the reason for the turn? And we can look at the text. Because the shepherd like Paul here was simply telling the truth. Because of love like that, because of a shepherding love like that. I told the men this before. You've heard me say it probably 37 times. But I'm going to say it one more time in a very different way this morning because we need to get this. And it bears repeating because it's right in this text. I'm going to say it another way. Many people love what God offers, but many people don't like what God commands. They want all the trappings of a spiritual life. The fellowship, the warm embrace, the hello, oh, you thought of me, the food, the meal. They want it. The care and concern. But they don't want the one that gives it. Don't come to me. Don't come to me with your spiritualisms and how to live life. I love the fact that you embraced me just the way I was, but don't tell me to be conformed to anything. Hence, when truth is proclaimed consistently and they are challenged with truth, they just turn, and they turn on the messenger. Friends become foes, and men like Paul become enemies. And why is that? Well, as we noted last week, there are many triggers for relapse. But beloved, I want us to see one here in this text. And it's right in the verse again. And we need to focus in on this. One in particular. Look at verse 17. They make much of you. But for no good purpose, they want to shut you out. That you may make much of them. Look at that phrase. They make much of you. Church, we're familiar with this trigger for relapse. You know what it's called? Flattery. It's flattery. And we're not only familiar with flattery, but listen, we recognize our affection for it. Beloved, I'm not throwing a stone here. I get this. I fall just like you in this area. Everyone loves a compliment, right? Is it not true? You don't even have to nod your head. Everyone wants to be made much of. Deep down in the recess of our soul, we want someone to make much of us. This is the spine of social media. And it goes back to the garden. We want what only is due to God, beloved. We want the credit. We know he did this. We know he is that. But ultimately, we want the credit. Flattery panders to the deepest recesses of our fallen flesh. Just tell me I'm good. Just tell me I'm good. Tell me like Eve desired that I'm good. Tell me like Eve that I am God. Tell me that. That's what I want to hear. We would never admit that, but we all know what lurks inside of us. Some of us fish for compliments. Some pretend that they don't like the attention. It has many forms, yet friends heed the warning right there in verse 17. They make much of you but for no good purpose. Like it always is, like it always is with flattery, it is ill-intended. Do you see that? There is no good behind it for the Galatians, yet they are sucked in. And what's worse, Paul continues, look at it, they want to shut you out that you make much of them. In other words, shut out the Apostle Paul, shut him out. We don't need that thorn, get him away. Shut him out, what he's doing is wrong, make much of us. We're the Jewish Christian missionaries make much of us. Not only is the motivation corrupt, but it's also self-serving, you see. Paul says they want to shut you out from me and ultimately from Christ, but more so that you would turn around and make much of them. Beloved, there's just so much application here. Do you see it's dripping off this verse? This is an avalanche of truth in like one verse. I just can't possibly communicate it this morning. Rather than giving a long list, let me at least remind you of the most potent, and we've all been affected by this one, how flattery relapses, how it kills, how it draws you away from what we should, the struggling marriage. The struggling marriage. 
Maybe let's pick one of the partners, the wife. She's just had enough. And there's that guy, that guy that looks at her and gives her attention and flatters her. But we know, men, don't we? He doesn't really want to give her something that he wants to give her out of agape love. No, he's in it for himself. The flattery is ill-intended like this. He just wants her. It's a physical thing. He's looking to shut out the husband so that she can make much of him. We know this all the time. I mean, they make movies and millions of dollars off that narrative because it's so tragically cliché. And like the covenant abandoned because of the flattery, so too is Christ abandoned here in Galatia. By the way, Paul reminds us that not all compliments are bad. Before we throw the baby out with the bathwater, can we just get settled with this? Not all compliments are bad. We don't want to walk around like a stoic church where you're like, yeah, that was neutral. Yeah, no, that was all right. That's not what we're talking about. Not all compliments are bad. Look at the text. Look at the text. Verse 18. This is so helpful. It is always good to be made much of for a, here it is, good purpose. And not only when I'm present with you. I so appreciate the balance of God's word. In other words, if the purpose is good, i.e. encouragement, then a compliment is good. We love the Barnabases around us. In fact, we need the sons of encouragement, don't we? There's nothing wrong with all compliments. It's just, what's your motive behind the compliment? Is it to prop up a brother or sister? Or is it to prop up yourself? What's the motive behind the compliment? That's the key that Paul is saying here. And note this. Look at the penetrating application of God's word. What does Paul say? It almost seems like an add-on. But not only in person, Paul here also highlights a common truth of flattery. He's talking about being there or not. Flattery... When it's ill-intended, think of the scenario of the struggling husband and wife, always happens when one of them's away, does it not? You never get the struggling couple, you know, and the night comes along and there's the husband. He's like, well, you're amazing. And he's standing right there. No, no, it's in the workplace. It's when he's away. And what do you get? Then you're amazing. Every time flattery incubates and flourishes when one is away. Paul departs and what happened in Galatia? It was like hell broke loose, right? Flattery rose up. That's when you see flattery. That's how you know it's ill-intended. And that's your great diagnostic test. If it's encouragement, you could say it to the masses. With their spouse there, with anyone else there. A sincere, well-intended, encouraging word. Doesn't matter who the audience is. Paul says here, a good word is also said away. Helpful for us. No surprise here in Galatia that the Judaizers waited until Paul was away. In church, we heed the warning. Formation relapses with flattery. One more. It's a brief one. Formation matures with attention. Paul closes his appeal with this. Look at verse 19. My little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you, I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. If this passage, these verses we've looked at, if this here is a mountain example of Paul's heartfelt love for the Galatians, and I want you to know in these verses, particularly verse 19, we have reached the pinnacle. This is the summit of his love. Look at the language in the pictures. Just track with me. I wish I could be present with you. Change my tone. That's intimacy. That's grace. He says, my little children. What a picture. That's a tenderness of a father to his own. I am in the anguish of childbirth. That is what the mother endures for her own. And all of this attention to what end? Look again, until Christ is formed in you. Christ's likeness, that is what is making Paul's heart beat here. As the Galatians relapse, succumb to flattery and give attention to what is false, Paul just cannot bear it. Look at it, he says, I'm perplexed. After all, they have his attention. Remember his concern from the last time, verse 11, right? That external attention. However, here Paul asks the Galatians, where is your attention? Is your attention to them, the Judaizers? Their distracting attention, their empty praise. Galatia, is that it? Their false gospel, is that it? Galatians, is that what grabs your attention? And as we close this morning, Westmount, that's the question for us. What has your attention? 
What grabs you? What is grabbing your attention, beloved, right now? More pointedly, I'd say, what has your eyes this morning? What has your gaze? And you just can't let go of that gaze. Consider this. Whatever it is that has you, that is what you're becoming. Whatever it is that has you this morning, that's what you're becoming. Whatever it is, is what image you're being conformed to. Your attention to it is molding you into its image. And that is because formation of any type matures with attention. Friends, where your attention is, your form and shape will follow. And church, in light of that, again, I ask, in what image are you being formed today? We claim Christ, Westmount, but can we be recognized by his form? Remember, formation starts with surrender. That means you stop placing your trust in all else, in yourself, and you surrender to Christ. Formation progresses with suffering, and it means you embrace your trial. You find relief in the fact that his power is being made perfect in your weakness. It means you recognize that formation relapses with flattery. Who is flattering you right now? Who is tempting you? What is tempting you with greener grass? Christ formed in you means you recognize those empty words pulling you away. And beloved, formation matures with attention. You are being shaped by something, and this passage asks you, by what? Give Christ your attention and let him be formed in you. Westman, I must close with saying this. I would be disingenuous to you if I didn't take advantage of this moment and say this. This is my prayer for you. Every day, I pray for each of you in this way. That Christ would be formed in each one of you. Listen to me. I'm not, the elders aren't looking for checklists. We're looking for conformity to Christ. It's not a bunch of to-dos and attendance and I did this and I read that. Are you being conformed to the image of Christ? Listen, who are you looking at and pursuing? Your thoughts? What about your choices? Everything you do, my prayer is that you be conformed to the image of Christ. That's it. That's it. Christ's likeness will not happen if you hang on to something. You must forsake everything else. You must give Christ every last bit of your life. Listen, there's no 92% in for Christ. That's not the way it works. Christ formed in you means you let Christ take 100%. Have you put your entire self on that altar? That's Christ's likeness. Lord, take our lives, every little bit of it, and shape them into the image of your Son. Father, that is our heart's cry this morning. That is what we desire. God, forgive us for our worldly pursuits. Forgive us, Lord, for our attention, distracted, seeking other things. And Lord, reorient our eyes and hearts and minds on you. God, we beg you this morning to do that. Take our lives and let it be, Father, absolutely set apart unto you. Amen.